Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, Fractional CMO at BDEX, along with David Finkelstein, BDEX's founder and CEO. How's it going, David? Uh, it's going well, Jesse. I'm excited to get this uh, podcast underway. It's been an, uh, an exciting week, but uh, uh, I'm looking forward to, to Friday coming as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to be live again tomorrow to make yeah. up for last week. <laughs> Yes, so we got two live, two live sessions, two days in a row, but that, that'll be great. Yeah, looking forward to that. But um, today we are lucky to welcome in another esteemed guest. So please welcome Michelle Bacharach. I'm going to pull her in. Welcome, Michelle. Hi. Hey, Michelle. I'm really glad that you could join us today. Um, I'm going to let Jesse sort of do a little more of an introduction and normally we have like a little longer introduction. Sure. Yeah. So welcome to the show, Michelle. And I know that you are with Fine Mail, the CEO there. And, you know, we're really privileged to have you here and to have you discuss these topics. I mean, we've got some um, long topics, but, you know, very important data topics that we've gotten in, haven't gotten into for a while, especially for a retail so I know, you know, that's what we'll be getting into. So looking forward to learning from you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So Michelle, why don't you kind of back up a little bit for us? Tell us a little bit about your history, um, your background, and what led you to um, create FindMind. And, you know, tell us a little bit more also about what FindMind is doing for, you know, your customers. Yeah, I'll start there. So FindMine is an enterprise software platform for retailers and brands, mostly in fashion, home, and beauty currently. And what we do for them is we're actually uh, the brand co-pilot, we call it, for generative AI. So um, we've been generating content and assets that help sell products um, since 2016 using AI to do that. And we're actually tying merchandising to marketing in a really uh, clever way so that these brands and retailers can feature a product that is maybe not selling as well as they want it to in marketing collateral. So um, in fashion, it's a lot of you know, lookbooks and style guides. In home furnishings, it's sort of the interior design inspiration and that shoppable content. And we're featuring those products in that way, um, in a way that doesn't involve human curation. So you don't have to have a person sit down and, and build that asset for the email or the homepage or create a custom landing page. Our AI is doing that dynamically. And so brands and retailers like Mitchell Gold, Bob Williams, uh, and Furniture, um, Land's End, you know, fashion brands, beauty brands, they use our software to basically get more done with less resources, which is kind of like the, the theme of this, you know, economic era in, in a big way, um, but also to inspire their customers more often and get that customer lifetime value to be higher. Um, and so in thinking about like how I got here, <laughs> it's funny because it's one of those things that only makes sense in retrospect. Um, like when you go down to, you know, write your... Um, you know, when I wrote my essay to get into uh, business school, it's like you we plot all these points together and you're like, oh, here's like a really clear through line in your career. But at the time you're going through it, you're like, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like all these random dots, right, that have no line that goes through them. That's kind of how I ended up here. Um, but I got my first job out of college at a startup because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And saw what startup life looked like. And I said, hey, maybe I could start something someday and ended up um, working in product management, which is about taking friction out of user journeys and the friction in the user journey for the consumer in the retail environment is really high. <laughs> I mean, I think anyone uh, who's ever shopped for anything in store or online would agree um, that there's a lot of friction there. And then I started looking into like, you know, why 
why does the customer have this friction? I started interviewing people who work in these brands and retailers organizations. And I found that they experience just so much friction as well. Their, um, their jobs are made slower by slow processes and manual repetitive work and all this kind of stuff. And I said, Hey, maybe there's something I can do to help the consumer with their friction by helping the retailer and brand with their friction. And that's why I decided to start a B2B software company that's actually ending up giving a benefit at the end of the day to the consumer as well. Wow. Yeah, that's very cool. I love the sort of entrepreneurial journey. Um, what's really interesting, and, and you know, we talk a lot about AI uh, lately, obviously, because everybody now talks about AI because of ChatGPT, but it's great to talk to and, and you know, and in the conversations that we have, we are also often talking about the fact that there's been a lot of AI going on and nobody really talked about it, right? Because not it wasn't at everybody's fingertips. Mm -hmm. And so it's really nice to talk to you where, you know, similar to our company, a company that's been using AI, but nobody really talked about it because they it wasn't sort of hands-on to the consumer. Everybody wasn't touching and feeling it and didn't get a feel for it. And so now it gives us an opportunity, right? And companies like yours, an opportunity to be able to say, hey, we've been doing this for a while. Like, you know, AI is not new to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's exciting. It's exciting to hear, you know, that sort of history and, and the fact that you've been doing this a while. And it's really interesting to hear about how you're doing it on the, in the retail space, especially. Absolutely. And since this is the Deconstructing Data podcast, you know, we want to hear and learn from you on the data aspect on it. So, you know, we want to decode find mind success and, you know, utilizing data for optimal inventory and management and reducing waste. Can you kick us off on this? Yeah. Oh God, such a juicy topic. Well, so we didn't start out doing this. We started out really just focusing on the marketing piece and trying to help sell more product. But what we realized during the pandemic is that there's like dirty secret in retail that, you know, there's, there's so much inventory waste and a lot of people are working to solve it. But they're doing it in kind of a barbell fashion. So on the one hand, is sort of production, right? Waste at the production, the factory level, how much water you're using to produce the cotton to provide the enough, you know, material for the jeans, the dyes that go into that, the scraps of fabric that get that don't get used at the factory, um, and you kind of like logistics from you know getting stuff from raw materials to physical, the finished products in like a store or in a warehouse, or at the fulfillment side, which is the other side of the barbell, that's going to be, you know, how you optimize your inventory or your um, your fulfillment logistics in the in the um, warehouses, right? So, how you're going to um, try to reduce carbon emissions as you ship product to customers, the packaging that you use, and the you know, is it recyclable, the, all that kind of stuff. But no one really has looked at how do we influence sustainability in the middle of the the you know supply chain or the value chain of getting a product from raw materials to a customer and then keeping it with the customer, right? Because returns is another element on the other side of the barbell. So what FindMind did during the pandemic when one of our customers came to us and said, hey, we have all these products in overstock, stores are closed, we cannot liquidate them to TJ Maxx, to Nordstrom Rack, wherever we send off-price product, can you help us? We said, hey, yes, I think we can. So we can take the product that is overstock and we can dynamically push it through more of our assets that we're creating because we're creating them dynamically. There's no person that has to go, oh, crap, I have to go update, you know, 300,000 outfits uh, for this fashion customer with this, you know, jean jacket that's not selling. Like, of course, that's not going to happen if it's in a manual model. So using AI is kind of the only way to do that. So what we learned from that experience was, okay, we can actually use uh, marketing 
as which is like very much in the middle right of the 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 uh, customer's journey and and uh, the kind of product supply chain that's before it got purchased sitting there on the website it's being advertised and stuff like that we can use marketing as a way to improve sustainability now how does that work well we know when products aren't selling as fast as they should be and our systems know that dynamically through data connections to the ERP, so like SAP system where they have the financial performance goal of, a, of each product and then what's actually selling and what the rate is. So we can know what that delta is and then say, hey, push this product. This is an important product um, before it has to get marked down 30% off or whatever it is. So then we push that product into all the assets. We control for the fact that, you know, a lot of times merchants might be worried that like that jean jacket is, is just a bad product. That's why it's not selling. So if we put it into, you know, the style guide, the lookbook, the seasonal um, neutrals for spring campaign or whatever it is, it's going to tank the performance of whatever it's associated with. And that is a real concern. Sometimes that does happen. However, in our experience, it happens like less than 5% of the time. More often what's happening is that jean jacket just didn't get enough love. It didn't get enough um, support. Maybe it's like a pink color and your customer's like, oh, I love it. It's so cool. But am I cool enough to pull off a pink jean jacket? I have no idea mm -hmm. how I would do, like wear that. So if you kind of surround your customer with the support and the editorial vision that you have that you're, you know, great at fashion, you're going to help them be great at fashion. That's when that product could sell. So we control for that scenario where sometimes it is just a bad product. We can isolate and contain it. Now you put it on clearance and kind of remove it from all the assets. But all this is happening dynamically in real time. And we're actually able to increase the sell through of products, not only before they have to go get shipped to off price channels and with all the you know extra packaging and carbon emissions and stuff that go from moving product from one place to another, we're able to sell at full price. And not only that, you know, a lot of companies we work with are big multi-brand, you know, retailers or billion dollar lifestyle brands that are global. They have multiple distribution centers and tons of products. So if you're, upselling your customer or you're doing a campaign via email or on social media that you click through and then you land on some kind of curated landing page, why not have all those products be from the same warehouse? Because if you're lucky enough to get your customer to buy an additional product, you might be sending two boxes, two carbon spewing trucks to their house. You know, there's all this kind of uh, supply chain externalities that are detrimental to the environment, detrimental to the margin of the business selling it to you that could be avoided just by selling stuff from the same place. And we don't do that if we're going to make a really stupid campaign, right? We're not going to like make that the main goal and then forget about the brand's quality and, and vision and all that kind of stuff. But most of the time, again, within the vision of the brand, within the, you know, bounds of high quality, we can do that. We can say the pool of inventory at this warehouse is great enough for us to make something really great in this campaign. And then if the customer buys more than one product from this set of products, they're coming from the same distribution center and you get this kind of cherry on top of a sustainability and inventory optimization benefit. Yeah, that's awesome. So if I'm understanding this correctly, you're basically taking the, you know, the AI or your platform is able to take sort of the, the sell through of a product or, or lack thereof and manage the ad campaigns based on, on what needs to sell. Right. And so exactly, it's, it's exactly. magic, you know, that's all awesome. shortens the production time cycle. Cause you know, one of the analogies I use all the time is like in a world where we don't exist, the merchant for that 
denim category can't like walk across the hall to marketing and be like, hey guys, like my denim jacket's not selling. Can you put it into 50 more assets and get it out across all your channels? Like it's just like a laughable and that like it's a laughable scenario because like first of all they're probably in different buildings people are still working from home and even if not they might be in different parts of the world maybe they have two different offices so like walk across the hall is not even a thing not only that like marketing's working nine months 12 months in advance on on holiday they're already working on you know valentine's day campaigns or next year like mm -hmm. the time cycle is so out of whack yeah. and then even if they did have the ability to like make it happen right now who has the time for one product, like, yeah, right. I can't sit down, do, you know, 50 hours of work for one product. There's no way. So the fact that we're able to do that dynamically is just a complete game changer to the existing paradigm. And it almost like I have to re-explain it multiple times sometimes to people who are like, wait, you can do that? Like mm -hmm. how? Because that's the power of AI, right? It's, it's, it's doing something at a human quality, but at the scale of a machine. That's incredible. Yeah, it's very cool. So are you actually, when you talk about the marketing channels that you're then pushing those products to, are those marketing channels typically uh, marketing channels that are run within the, um, that brand? Or is it also um, outside that brand? In other words, like, you know, their third party marketing that they're doing advertising online, you know, through yeah. personal product through Amazon or whatever it is, like, are, the, are you able to integrate to the fact that you can push it through these other third-party channels or is it primarily through the brand's channels? We do on the third-party, definitely. However, it's mostly the, the brand's own channels, their own emails, their own um, website, their own kind of dynamic marketing landing pages, their own stores, right? Like we do this in a physical store on like touchscreens and in tablets for associates and stuff like that. The reason for that is not every third-party marketing channel can accept dynamic updates. Sure. So yeah. if you were to do like a fa organic Facebook post, we can't swap product in and out of that yet. Maybe Facebook will allow that eventually, but at the moment, it's not worth it to do it there. I mean, you can use FindMind to produce assets that then you save statically down and, and upload into your social media platform or some other third-party ad servers and stuff like that. But from there on, we can't manipulate it. Um, but if it's like ad retargeting, that's manipulable. If it's uh, mm -hmm. trying to some other like off property stuff we've done like um facebook messenger chat like we've done a facebook messenger chat application where you can take a picture of the product and then we can create content around it dynamically within the chat application that's one where dynamicism is allowed but it just depends on the channel and that's where like we need we're pushing the envelope a little bit like we're more sophisticated in some ways than like facebook or, or you know some of these other platforms that don't allow that sophistication to come to fruition. And so we have to sort of wait until those platforms get to that point. And at mm -hmm. that point, then we can take more advantage of the off property kind of advertising world. Yeah, I get it. It's super powerful. It's great. And it definitely kind of, you know, leads it a little into the next topic, which is the danger mm -hmm. of over-personalization. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, how can retailers and brands maintain identity while tailoring consumer experience? Yeah, this one, I feel like I don't want to get a reputation of being like the anti-personalization person. Mm -hmm. I always say that, but then somehow I'm always having to qualify that. So it's like, maybe I do have that reputation, but I think that uh, personalization is great. It's, it's very important. However, who is exactly who they want to be right now? 
right? There's always like, you always want a better version of yourself. That's why, that's why I believe that like fashion will never buy into exclusively like showing it on you like virtual try on, I think is a, uh, an, and not an, or, um, people want to see it on a fashion model. They want to see it on someone who like has a better sense of style than them, who is thinner or taller or whatever it is. Like that aspiration is so important. Same thing with like furnishings, like I'm not an interior designer. So if you personalize to me based on what I've done, I say the exact same level of like first apartment out of college plus, you know, like mm -hmm. it's not great. So I need the extra help. And that's where this kind of counterpoint to personalization comes in, which is the editorial vision of the brand. Um, you know, Mitchell Gold Bob Williams makes beautiful handcrafted furniture that is very design forward. And I would love to be the kind of person who has that. But like, can I pull off that modern coffee table? I, I don't know. My apartment's kind of basic. Like, <laughs> that's where I'm going to come in and say, our AI has trained on the editorial vision of these brands. And we can scale that out so we can give you, the consumer, the expertise you need from this brand to be a better version of yourself. And then personalize to you within that. But that coaching and that kind of closing the gap between who you are today and who you want to be, that's what the brand needs to do. And that's how they differentiate. So if you think about a world that is purely personalized only to us, when I go to Nike's website and Adidas's website and Lemon's website, it all just looks like michelle.com. If it's purely personalized to me, where's the difference, right? Whereas those brands are all very different. They need to be different in order to keep their very high market caps. Like they're, they have a cultivated, a, uh, I don't know, position in the minds of consumers consciousness. That's important. And that differentiation completely collapses when you are doing pure personalization and everything just looks like Michelle. So that's where we take a very hard tack against personalization is the be all end all. Now we actually help further personalization goals without going completely over overboard. Like you might do if you just, you know, in installed your personalization technology platform and just like let it run with no counterpoints from the editorial side. And what I mean by that is, so like, let's take the kind of, uh, example of, of, uh, athletic apparel. Cause I was just, you know, mentioning some of those brands. So if you, are one of those brands marketing teams. And you're like, we want to do a campaign on running. Cool. You can do that. You do that all the time, but you probably don't have the time to do a campaign on, you know, new mom trying to get back in shape running marathon training, running like Ironman training for the 50th time running. Like they're different kinds of runners and you kind of pick the highest level category because you don't have time to get specific. So with fine mind, what you can do is you can fractalize that, running campaign into 50 different flavors, run the campaigns and then see who's clicking on what. So I might not click on the, you know, marathon running, but I might click on the new mom trying to get back in shape running ad and find mine is taking care of all those flavors, updating the, the products that go along with those campaigns dynamically because they come in and out of stock all the time. Now you've learned something about your customer. So you might target on Facebook to people who you think might be in that segment, but you don't really know. If they click on it, they buy something. Now, you know, they're probably part of that segment. You make a little note in your CDP or, I mean, obviously all this is dynamic, but you know, that CDP mm -hmm. or personalization platform or whatever now has more information because Find Mine solved the content bottleneck and made you more variety of content. Mm. 
Yeah, that it makes that makes a lot of sense. And and you you can sense that, and I never really thought about this before, but you can sense that Amazon does the same thing because you know, Amazon always has, you know, where they'll suggest things that are similar to what you've already bought. And that's kind of what you're saying. It's, that's mm -hmm. David.com in my case. But yeah. there's always these other items that they suggest that are totally not related to anything that I bought before. And to your point, they're testing me. They're trying to see if um, if I'm going to click on one of those things, they can then learn a little more about what my interests are aside from what I've already purchased. Yeah. Okay. And Amazon is like, I mean, it's Amazon. It's like massive, yeah. right? It's, it's the variety is, is endless. It's crazy. So like for them, they don't necessarily have like an editorial point of view of their own, right? Mm -hmm. David.com plus a little bit better is kind of all they need to, to do. But the brands that sell on amazon.com can't have that happen. They're trying to like uh, sit on the other side of the seesaw as best they can. And that's where some of our, like we call it the, our retail media offerings, where we're creating the content on third-party platforms. Those might be advertisement like kind of things on, you know, 300 by 250s or something like that. But it also might be you're selling your product on a third-party reseller site, or you're selling your product on, you know, a traditional retailer website. Yeah. And you still need to kind of control the narrative there. And, and we can help with that as well. Yeah. What's awesome about this, and we talk about this a lot on, on this show, um, we see companies like ours and, and yours doing the same thing, democratizing AI, where, you know, it used to be that only these companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google, you know, really had the, you know, the processing power and the data and, and, and everything to be able to do this. Um, now mm -hmm. we've gotten to a point right, where the technology has advanced enough that companies like ours, companies like yours can build this technology and sort of make data and make uh, AI available to anyone. And, you know, I, we all have our own niche, you know, and yeah. so, you know, you're, you're taking that and saying, hey, you don't need to be Amazon Land's End, like we can do this for you. And that's, that's yeah. amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. And I think what's super interesting about this too, is like, to the point of data or democratization of AI and like the the rise of ChatGPT and having put it in the fingertips of sort of everyday people and made it easy to interact with and all that stuff, the logical conclusion potentially might be, well, brands can just do what FindMind does in-house, like build it yourself, right? The challenge with that is the promise of something like ChatGPT, which is a large language model and like it eats the internet and digests it and gives a wisdom of the crowd's response is if you outsource your or if you maybe not even outsource because you, you would be using it internally in the organization. But if the brand is using a large language model like that to produce their marketing assets, the running campaign is going to look the same between brand A, brand B, brand C, because it's using the wisdom of the crowd's data. Unless you tell it, hey, large language model, my brand means this. You have to teach it, right? Mm -hmm. So now, like the promise of, of these large language models is now you can like let go of a bunch of marketer, marketers who are making assets and you're going to save money and, and reduce cost and make, you know, get more assets produced more quickly. Cool. But you run the large language model and it's not giving you good results because it doesn't know what your brand is. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, okay, we need to teach it our brand. Now you have to hire prompt engineers, data labelers, and technical people to feed it the right data to teach it what the brand means. And though those people are technical people, they're not creative people. So now you have to loop back a bunch of creative people in to say, hey, like, what should I do? Because the brand guidelines document doesn't have enough information for the large language model to understand 
how we differentiate from our competitors. How do I explain to this AI system what our brand is and means? And you've gone from like, okay, we're going to let go, you know, five people who are like $60,000 a year on average, but now we're going to hire 10 people and like co-opt five other people from marketing who stayed in the organization. And the 10 people we hired are $150,000 like data engineers. Have we saved any money? No. Like, and then that same thing would have to happen at every single brand and all the resources that go into teaching the large language model, what brand A is, brand B is, brand C is, or you could just use FindMine as a brand co-pilot that sits alongside whatever you're trying to do with the large language model. So that's where we feel like we have this, you know, we're in this position to completely take off at this point because you can't really get the full value out of these platforms unless you're using FindMine as an adjunct or unless you've, unless you've done all that work I just described, which is expensive, it's time consuming. It's like the antithesis of the promise of AI. Wow. Well, were you gonna say something, David? Nope, you're good. Okay. <laughs> I'm hearing something. Um, I'm going to transition us into this third topic, but enriching the customer journey. So you've talked a little bit about this already, but leveraging advertising data to maximize revenue and achieve sustainability. So can you explain to the viewers what you guys are doing there with that? Yeah. And I touched on this a little bit already with respect to how you can use this kind of fractalization of a campaign to get more information about your customer. But what actually from like a revenue standpoint is so powerful about, uh, you know, when FindMine is installed, like we do A-B tests, we, we track the metrics when customers engage with content that we've produced versus otherwise. W one of our main like success metrics is customer lifetime value. So it's not conversion rate, which is, I mean, that does go up too. But conversion rate is a really easy metric to boost. And a lot of companies who have like on-site technology or e-commerce enablement technologies, conversion is a metric for them. They increase, you know, search companies that make you find the product that you need faster and all that kind of stuff, which is great. But a lot of times the source of data for that is what's selling well. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Stuff that sells well continues to sell well because it gets, gets pushed and picked up by these, you know, machine learning platforms um, that are goosing conversion. So what happens is it's you're selling more stuff, but it's like the expense of the long tail of your product because the stuff that's selling more of is the good products. So it's furthering this supply chain inventory inefficiency problem that FindMind is able to solve because we can take that long tail and say, hey, let's get these products to sell faster. So it's not only goose conversion and kind of forget about everything else. The value proposition we're able to bring to the table is attend to the long tail, help improve that so that you have better margins, more sustainability. And don't just think about conversion, think about the long-term relationship with the customer. And so by giving that customer the like new mom trying to get back in shape running kind of experience, you have now built loyalty with her by showing her, Hey, you just bought this product. Here's, you know, 10 days worth of outfits to wear with it, or here's how you would style your around it, knowing that you have already this hutch from us or something like that. Or you just bought this anti-aging serum. Here's the complete anti-aging regimen. And by the way, don't mix your retinol cream with a vitamin C because it's going to counteract each other. Like that has value. And that's why customers come back and buy more frequently such that the whole customer lifetime value goes up by 150% because you might get them to convert more at the first time, but you get them coming back and buying again. The first time they buy, 
Like the CAC is so high for so many brands that you might not have made money on them on their first purchase. That's mm-hmm. insane. That's so wild. Like yep. it's just such a hard business to be in if that's the case. So if we're able to get them to come back and buy again, and then the next time they come back and buy, they're spending more money than they did the first time. Because again, we're coaching them to be a better version of themselves, which means more aspirational products, right? You're, co- you're getting them out of their price point comfort zone. That's where you get this bigger compounding effect around loyalty. It's true. We've, we've, ha- we've actually had conversations where we're, we're talking to um, people that are, you know, sort of building their camps, campaigns based on LTV instead of CAC because they know that the customer acquisition cost is going to be so high that they really have to look at the lifetime value because that's, you know, they're, they're trying to keep the customer for as long as possible, knowing that their customer acquisition cost is going to be so high. And so they have to optimize based on LTV. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think CAC LTV ratio would be a good sweet spot, but we've got a couple questions that came in. So let's pull them up. Very insightful. Michelle, how do you expect AI will continue to impact retail in the coming years? Oh man, there's so many, there's so many things. Like I think one of the most interesting areas outside of what we're doing with AI and retail is, is around fraud, fraud prevention. Um, There's so many bad actors out there. Like I, I, I actually like don't even fully understand all the ways someone can scam a, re- a retailer. Um, it blows my mind. Like I'm always learning about these, you know, in conferences and stuff like that. Like what, how did people think of that? And I think AI, because of like the massive amounts of data that retail has um, is like very, very purposefully built to solve a problem like that. And so I think that is going to continue to evolve. However, people are and, you know, they're, they're clever. And so scammers are going to continue to get smarter. But I think that uh, that's one area that I think is going to just really improve and change a lot over time with the use of these kind of new AI technologies. And that's not even generative AI, right? Generative AI is, is producing something that a human would produce. This is more just kind of run the mill AI, but it has made leaps and bounds forward in that category. And then, you know, what we do, obviously, self-servingly, I think is going to continue to get better. I think, um, like rendering. So the, the visual rendering is going to be a huge area of leaps and bounds of improvement right now. Uh, Google just launched this like, you know, virtual models thing that they're doing with, um, I think anthropology was one and there's some other companies using it and it, it looks pretty good. I think they're using actual, you know, real humans and then kind of superimposing the, the garments. Our own machine learning engineering um, lead has done some experimentation with like synthetic humans, so like not real people and showing the garment on them, um, showing like 3D and a- uh, AR kind of renderings for like furniture. So you can kind of see it visualize in your space and have things come together and the sort of synthetic advertising creative you know, from the get go. So like not a real person, but looks like a person, not a real background, but looks like she's standing in a forest, you know, not a real product, but it's a 3D rendered image of a product that hasn't yet been created. And it's an ad that goes live, just like any other ad. The challenge currently is that from like the synthetic human creation standpoint, there's a lot of wacky stuff that's happening. Like the fingers will be like the toddler fingers on like a woman. And <laughs> it's alarming and jarring and in a way that you can't put it live to hundreds of millions of consumers without a human review, but it's getting better with fine with respect to fine mind, like 90, 90 to 95% of our content goes live to a consumer and we a hundred million consumers a month see our assets. So we're talking about a lot of people, a lot of at bats, it goes live to the consumers without any human intervention whatsoever. So we can't risk that 
currently with, you know, having like a finger coming out of a neck or something. And some of the things that we show, cause mm-hmm. we're all about brand safety and, you know, being accretive to the brand, but that rendering technology will get there. And that's, you know, we're standing by to, to help take that to the next level once the technology is good enough to have all of that go live to the consumer too. So I think that's a, the big area that I'm excited about with respect to what we're doing. That's really cool. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, I think you, you know, you hit on one that's, that's we're really sensitive to, which is the fraud. And so, you know, that's something that we do in our business and, and our technology does is try to detect IDs that are linked to fraud. Um, and we work with a, a number of companies that are, you know, both feeding data into that and, and, um, you know, as well as licensing data from us in order to help detect fraud in, in a wild, you know, number of different use cases. But a lot of it is is ad fraud, um, but also looking at data that's coming in that's uh, th- that's linked to consumer, you know, purchase fraud uh, as well, you know, retail fraud, fraud as well. And it's amazing, like you said, that you, you can't even believe some of the some of the things that goes on and it's a constant constant fight but i think that the technology will help us you know continue to improve on on that and and hopefully be able to stop it you know all out someday but we'll see never humans are too clever for that (laughs) (laughs) yeah well what will really happen is that the the fraudsters will develop their own ais to get around yeah yeah oh it'll be an ai war so yeah. we had another question come in. So what about those cases where companies sell literally the same product, but the but with different names, cold medicine, sinus medicine, flu medicine, but they are all the same ingredients. Personalization without product changes, smiley face. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think that cold medicine in particular is a really interesting one because I'm a mom. I don't buy the generic brand like there's just this like weird level of trust that I have for actually yeah, my, my Motrin right here this is funny um <laughs> my my off podcast recording studio is in the closet and so I'm like my desk is the dresser and then the dresser I have children's Motrin it's funny <laughs> meditated um and it's not an ad for Motrin anyway but like I think <laughs> there's think about the trust, especially with things that have to do with like safety and health in particular, that that's what Motrin as a brand has done a really good job of. Like there's no reason if the ingredients are the same that I should feel differently about it versus the CVS brand or the Target brand or some you know other brand. I don't like I shouldn't, but I do. I, I have that affinity for a company that feels trustworthy. It makes me feel safe. Right. And that's that's what Fine Mind does. Like we help support that. And so if, if Motrin was able to then say, you're looking at this Motrin, by the way, if your kid is sick, here's some other things that you need in order to help them mm-hmm. feel better or think about, you know, it could make their stomach upset. So make sure that you're giving it with, with food or whatever it might be, the trust goes up. And so there's an opportunity for these, you know, companies that are competing with that brand name to build my trust. And that's again, making me better. It's making me a better mom. It's making me more, more aware of my child's needs and more confident as a mother. So it's still not personalizing exclusively to me because I still need that help. I need, I still need that expertise boost and that can change my brand loyalty or further drive my brand loyalty with the brand I'm already loyal to. 
Absolutely. No, I love that. And um, we need to get to tech stack really quick. Um, and I don't know if we'll have time for the post topic questions, but we'll see. Um, but what are some of the your favorite tools in your tech stack? Yeah, um, it's not really a tech stack tool, but I'm a big fan of Carta for like cap table management. I think it's like they do such a good job of supporting the like startup ecosystem. I'm really a fan of their their brand. Um, and then from like a tech stack standpoint, Looker is something that we use a lot. Um, you know, as a CEO and the founder and the person who's always like looking at profitability metrics or you know, growth, how we're spending things, what the return on investment is like, it's so expensive. Gosh, Looker is so expensive and Google bought them. And it's like, I thought that was going to make it less expensive. It, it hasn't. And every time I'm like, uh, why do we pay so much for this? But I'm in that tool all the time and it does such cool things. And it is like so great. The level of analytics that we are able to give our brands because of platforms like Looker is just insane. Like we can give them such rich insights like your customers hate color blocking or, you know, this product sold well when paired with this thing, but not with this thing. And just, it's amazing the value they get out of that. And, and the way we do that is what well, we have, like the, the databases that we use and stuff, but Looker is the one that makes it able to be visualized by someone like me. I mean, I, I was a product manager for my whole career before starting the company. So I'm not in the code. I need that executive level kind of summary of the data and Looker is, is my number one answer to that question from a tech stack perspective. It's your go-to. And you said the first one was Karkta. How do you spell that? Oh, C-A-R-T-A. Okay. Yeah. It's like, you know, for managing like investor shares and employees. Oh, Karkta. Okay. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. We use, we use Gust, G-U-S-T. I don't know, the Gust equity platform. It, it works too. Uh, I haven't tried Karta. Yeah. I, I just like... My tech stack as a CEO mm -hmm. involves a lot of things that are not very sexy and are very like operational too, like just works for our, our employees. Like I love that platform. It's part of part of my suite of uh, managerial software. Mm -hmm. um, and I spend less time obviously in like the deep, the technical parts of the business. But yeah, I think that uh, there's there's brand value even here. You know, it doesn't have to be in retail. There's brand value in the software we consume. Mm -hmm. It's true. Absolutely. Well, we've got five more minutes, so I guess we could probably get to one of these questions. Um, Michelle, if you could go back when you first came into, you know, let's say, you know, when you first started Find Mine, and like, what is the number one piece of advice you would give yourself with starting a business? Mm. <laughs> So I think my biggest piece of advice that I would give myself, like knowing that I was going to start this would be nobody else knows the answer or they would have built the company already. Because I came in kind of thinking like, do I really know what I'm doing? Like, you know, you listen, you go to all these like networking events and there's a lot of guru worshiping that happens in, in startups and, and you kind of get a little bit of experience and you're like, yeah, well, that person's super smart, but not in this because this is new. So like there's, there's a, and I, I'm not the kind of personality that would like never take advice, right? I'm going to take too much advice and like um, not trust my instincts enough, or at least back then I did. And I think that if I had uh, given myself advice back then, it would be to get there faster, get to the point faster where you can trust your gut. And the way to do that is really to understand like, yes, there's lots of valid opinions about how to, you know, 
enterprise sales best practices and stuff like that. There's tons of that. And that's awesome. But for your particular business and, and what you're building didn't exist before. It's new in the world. And if it's not new in the world, it's probably not going to make it right. Like you have some kind of angle as to why this is different. This is going to be disruptive, whatever. You have to be confident in that and knowing that that's going to be the thing that might be different than what someone else who is way more experienced than you in startups in general or tech in general or your industry in general, they might not know that. So that's kind of how I would would frame it to myself back then is, is just trust that if someone else had more expertise than you do in this particular domain, they would have already started your company and be a billion dollars and they're not. So trust what you think. Oh, that's great advice. And Warren's really? funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Warren says he's going to go out and buy a motor. <laughs> this was not an advertisement for motor. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Michelle, that you, yes, uh, it's a that's great advice. Um, but what I really love is the reaction. As soon as we ask, ask the question, everybody is like, oh, wow. You know, it's like, and it really makes them think like, what advice would I give myself? I'd love to have like screenshots of all the reactions. Cause I feel like everybody's reaction is, is really very similar because <laughs> as soon as you hear the question, you're like, oh, wow. Like, what would I, what would I, well, you know, tell I myself? get the question a lot. Like, what is your best advice for other people starting a company? And that is don't do it. It's always <laughs> just, just don't do it. Like, honestly, because if you can't ignore me, like you're meant to start this. Like if you just can't help yourself, mm -hmm. you're going to be fine. Like you're going to have the motivation to get up every day. But if you can, if you're like, okay, well maybe I won't start this. You you shouldn't. Like right. if you have that level of doubt about what you're doing, like do not jump into this. But when I get asked like, what would you tell yourself? That's a different question. Cause I was already like, I couldn't not do this. So then yeah. that gives a little bit of a different flavor, which I think is a really fun, fun way to phrase it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and I know awesome. that our audience probably did too. So how can they find you after the show? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm Michelle Backrack on LinkedIn. Um, we are find mine on LinkedIn, findmine.com. And yeah, we're pretty easy to find. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's been great. We're really glad that you joined us today. I think this was a great conversation. I think our listeners got some, some really great information and uh, thank you again. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, to be here. Thanks for having me, you guys. Absolutely. And thank you. And audience members, we hope you'll check out BDEX's Omni IQ. Um, shameless plug. I'm going to pull up a QR code. Sorry to cover you up, David. But if you're seeing this later on the audio version only, then you can't see the QR code. You'll just want to go to BDEX.com. Um, but you can simply upload a CSV mm -hmm. list of your first party customer data and get complimentary analytics on it. Um, it's unlike anything I've seen anywhere else. It's really awesome. Of course, you know, if you want more than what is available with the complimentary suite, you can upgrade to learn more about your customers. Um, and then it does more. You can take that and build a, build an audience. It's an expanded audience or work with our team on a custom audience. Uh, anything on that that you want to add, David? Nope. I, only other thing I'll just add is, uh, it's as far as building an audience, it's about building an audience off of your first party data. <clears throat> and that's what we think is the most important part, understanding your customers, uh, learning about them, and then building an audience of people that looks just like them so you can improve your target. 
Exactly. So we would love to hear from listeners. You can reach us at info at and share your qualitative data with us so we can make this better for you. All right. Well, thank you so much again, everybody, and we'll see you next week. All right.